I'm Zach Miller, Editor-in-Chief of Tearsheet. The following was produced by Tearsheet Studios. We worked with Q2, a digital banking software company, to create a four-part podcast series on how embedded finance and banking as a service is changing the definition of who is a bank, where customers turn for banking products and services, and how it's helping some of the weakest players in the economy get access to the modern financial industry. There's still almost 20% of the U.S. population that's underbanked. That's tens of millions of people who may have access to basic banking, but are falling between the cracks. That's in spite of the fintech bull market we've had over the past few years. My name is Ahan Sarkar. Uh, I'm the VP of Product and Strategy for Q2's Banking as a Service Group. So that basically means I, I sort of focus on how our platform is evolving over time, You know how we're working with different kinds of customers to build differentiated products, um, and how we're taking that and messaging it out into the market to sort of grow the industry. You sort of have to look at what drives uh, the way that consumers feel about banks and, and sort of what the root cause of that is. So if you look at it at the most basic level, there's a, about 16%, 16 to 20%, depending on who you ask, of the population. That is what's called underbanked. So that means that they have a social security number, they could get banking services, um, but Either they're not really served by the banks, or they might have lost trust over the years um, and, and choose not to use banks today. Part of the reason many people aren't served by banks is that the economics are messed up. It simply costs a financial institution more money than it's worth to service people without a lot of money in their accounts. It comes down to the business model. If you trace that back as to why, a lot of people will look at that and say it's because banks are evil. And that's not really the case, right? Banks aren't evil, right? They're trying to make a business that works for them, that works for their communities. Uh, and if you look at sort of how the business model of banking works, you can uncover why some of these underbanked folks might feel underserved by those banks. As an example, right, one of the biggest costs for a bank is the technology, right? So banks have to run on what's called a core. And within the country, there are tons of cores, but most banks use one of four traditional cores, right? And a core is basically how you're ledgering activity for a customer, how you're opening accounts, all that kind of stuff. But let's just do a simple math equation, right? So on average, for those kinds of core processors, banks pay somewhere between three and $12 per month per account to go and service these customers, right? And so if we take a very conservative look and we say, let's look at that $3 per month, and let's pretend that there are no costs for branches. There's no costs for marketing, right? Let's just pretend my only costs are technology cost and cost of capital. And Zach, let's say you have you know $1,000, right? Which is more than most Americans today. And you come into this bank and you say, hey, I want to open an account. Well, let's first look at the cost side. Well, the, the, co the bank's going to have to pay about $10 in cost of capital. And then they're going to have to pay three times 12, $36 in technology costs. And again, we're not paying employees, we're not paying branches, we're not paying marketing. But so far, we've spent about $46 to power banking services for you. Now, on the flip side, in the US today, and it just shrunk a little bit post-pandemic, but typically net interest margin for a bank on loans is something like 3%. So you take that $1,000, you get 3% against it, and you're making about 30 bucks. So you pull together the two sides, you're making 30 bucks and you're losing 46. On net, for you, even though you have more money than the average American, the bank is losing $16 on you, right? And so the bank has a problem. Well, the bank wants to serve you and, and give you some kind of financial services, 
But if they're losing $16 in every consumer like you, over time, that's going to drive them out of business. This deficit, that it costs banks more money than they make with smaller accounts, has led to a reliance on fees that ultimately hurts consumers. And so then you got this cycle, right? As banks were trying to push over into free checking, as Discover sort of started with the free checking account and other banks followed suit, they had to find a way to become profitable. And so they solved this negative 16 problem with things like NSF fees, things like overdraft fees. Now, while that solved the financial problem, this created a cycle, right? Where the poorest Americans were being charged the most in monthly fees. I mean, imagine you make 30,000 a year and you pay something like the US average of $300 plus in bank fees. That means more than 1% of your post-tax income just disappears, right? Just goes towards these kinds of fees to use those services. And so it's natural that that universe of customers doesn't feel like they're being served, doesn't be, feel like there are solutions out there for them, and so remains sort of underbanked in the United States. Banking as a service changes some of these dynamics. Technologies powered by cloud and APIs make it viable for any brand, could be a payroll processor or accounting software, to offer banking services. Being able to offer a banking or payment product gives their customers a better ultimate experience. Banking as a service changes things, starting with the economics. I think it really comes down to two things, right? One is capabilities, and then two is business model. We'll start with the second one because we just sort of talked about what the existing business model would look like and go back to that simple equation, right? So Zach has $1,000. We don't have marketing costs. We don't have employee costs. We're just looking at cost of capital, technology cost, and lending margin. If you're able to do what new innovations in the space have done, like cloud-based cores, you can decrease the cost to serve that user dramatically, right? Because those legacy cores have been around for you know 40 to 60 years, are built in COBOL, and do a lot of stuff. And so require pretty heavy costs when it comes to maintenance and upkeep. If you use something like a cloud-based core, the cost to serve that user goes down from something like $3 to $12 per month per account, down to something like 50 cents per user per month, right? So let's pretend that's the only change. The only thing that changes is the technology. Well, if you look at that same equation, you spend $10 in cost of capital, but now you're only spending $6 to go and service that user, and you're still making the $30 in net interest margin. So you now you're making 30 and you're spending 16, so you're making $14. So what happened, right? We changed the technology foundation of the product, and we took for the exact same user for the same value prop, we took it from negative 16 to positive 14. That's pretty amazing, right? And what that does is it changes the incentive structure because in the United States, folks go after ways to make profit, right? And so finally, this population of you know approximately 16% of the US population, which used to be fundamentally uh, unprofitable, excuse me, due to the cost of legacy solutions, is now an open market, right? So now you have a business model that allows you to serve the majority of Americans, even those that are low balance users, um, with a pretty compelling value proposition. So that's the business model side. In addition to making it profitable to offer bank accounts to more customers, banking as a service also opens up new opportunities. In particular, it ties financial transactions tighter to other activities. Banking becomes something you do as opposed to somewhere you go. On the other side of the fence, you have capabilities, right? So for the longest time, cores by and large stayed the same, right? 
you could open an account, you could KYC an underlying user, and in the last 15 to 20 years, you could access it on your computer and eventually your phone. But what's happened with the new sort of advent of banking as a service platforms is those capabilities to build those underlying products have been exposed as tools, right? So it's not just open an account, create a transfer. Now you can sort of think about, hey, if I could change the way that we store money or change the way that we move money, how could I plug that into my existing ecosystem to make something different? So what fintechs are able to do, fintechs, technology companies, other companies who just touch or hold money, is use those capabilities and combine it with that business model to build something that's truly differentiated, right? And that allows them to go after that specific customer base and say, hey, what are your problems and how can I solve them for you? So how does that manifest, right? If you look out into the market, you'll see products like CK allowing folks to access stimulus checks, credit card, by the way, access stimulus checks early, access tax refunds early, you know, uh, earn instant karma on everyday transactions that would normally be reserved for only those served by the credit market. And so suddenly, if those two days are going to make a big difference for you, Credit Karma is giving you an option to get that access as soon as possible. Or you can look at folks like Gusto, who are allowing folks to get a free cash advance on their paycheck, leveraging their capabilities as a payroll provider, which allows folks to avoid payday lenders who might take anywhere from 10 to 20% of every single paycheck. Or you can even see folks like Acorns, who've embedded banking inside of the ecosystem of investing to help folks save, invest, and plan for their future all in sort of one tight package, right? So you zoom out and you see two things. You see the business model has changed to allow folks to profitably serve underbanked users, creating an incentive for companies to build highly targeted products that actually solved underbanked users' needs. And the capabilities becoming modular and being delivered through the cloud allows these companies to build them in a way that's tailored, bespoke, and not sort of the one-size-fits-all that consumer banking has been for the last few years. Banking as a service is being used by brands like Credit Karma and Gusto to offer integrated banking solutions with new capabilities to their users. Now, these firms aren't banks. They're not financial institutions. I asked Ahan how they make money by offering a free debit card. Yeah, that's a great question, right? And the nice thing about the business model of banking as a service is it's intrinsically tied to the behavior that you're trying to catalyze, right? So all of these companies, whether it be the ones that you mentioned or folks like Chime or the other neobanks that you're seeing, by and large, make money off of interchange, right? So the ability to earn some money when that debit card is swiped. Now, when I say that it's intrinsically tied to the activity that you're trying to catalyze, what I mean is, what are these companies trying to solve, right? They're trying to help you with your money management. They're trying to help you manage your cash flow. And most importantly, they're trying to help you meet your goals. And so why would you use that product? Well, you'd use it to the extent that it helps you meet your goals, right? Whether that be investing for the first time or um, you know, saving towards uh, your daughter's education, whatever that might be, right? And so you are trying to use their product and find some value out of it. They are trying to create a product that's useful, right? And so... If they can get you to use their card and drive transactions, that drives interchange revenue for them. And so it creates this sort of virtuous cycle, right? Where they build products that are useful for you, you use those products, and the usage of those products drives revenue. You know, compare that to what 
quote unquote free products used to be prior, right? If you look at free products uh, like Facebook, et cetera, they're selling you, right? You become the product. They're selling your data and they're using that data to sort of power this underlying service, which can sometimes be at odds with what you want. You know, privacy is important. That data is important. And so that model can sometimes become tough for people to stomach. On this side, you see a model that's driven by action, right? In which users are making those transactions, creating interchange revenue and getting benefit from it, right? Because a lot of these companies, whether they be the ones that you mentioned or others, are taking some of that interchange revenue and passing it back to the user, right? Take that sort of simple math equation that we were just talking about. If I'm able to make something like $14 um, just by working with you, I could pull $7 in as revenue and I can give that $7 back to you um, in the form of things like accessing ATMs for free or getting cash back on a debit card, et cetera. And so long story short, companies are making money off of interchange. Interchange is driven by usage. That causes companies to build usage-focused products, which are tailored to the underlying demographic. As new industries and brands begin offering financial products and services, there's a changing dynamic in the industry. When you start to look at it, it could actually have a positive spillover effect to the economy at large. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question, right? Because I think folks tend to focus a little bit on you know, banking as a service, specifically how these platforms are changing. Uh, but I think your questions are really interesting one. You know, how, how does the changes that are happening within banking as a service affect, affect the economy? I think what you start to see is a change in expectations, right? In the same way that when Discover launched the first checking account, the expectation suddenly became that checking would become free and then banks had to adjust and bring in the fees that I mentioned prior. As fintechs, technology companies, and other companies are able to finally serve these underbank users with targeted products that are at low cost and solve their specific problems, that becomes the expectation, right? Consumers start to expect that when they go into a bank, be it a small bank, a large bank, or a fintech, that they're getting solutions built for them at a low cost basis that allows them to sort of live their life. And so what you're seeing is even the largest institutions trying to figure out a way to become competitive with that new set of consumer expectations. So what used to be, hey, consumers are just the cost of deposits, I really ultimately make my money through loans, is becoming consumers are a key part of our overall philosophy. We're trying to find ways to serve them at low cost, whether that be by doing a technology revitalization or by defeaturing our products and going after them. But the net result is whether you're partnering with a you know, banking as a service powered fintech, or you're going to one of the larger banks, pretty soon a lot of these underbanked folks will have options, right? And we'll have options that are not feeing them to death, that are not ludicrously expensive, and that allow them to actually start building their wealth and getting out of the sort of economic paradigm that they've been in historically. If Ahan's vision continues to play out, we get a lot closer to reaching those 40 to 70 million people in the underbanked category. The underbanked may not do their banking with the traditional bank in the future. They'll access financial services from other software and apps they commonly use. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's pretty interesting to be able to be sitting in the middle of these kind of changing times, because to some extent, we're all sort of watching that future become a reality, right? And I think you can start to pick some of the breadcrumbs today. I mean, look at the population, like I said, depending on who you ask, that underbanked population is somewhere between 40 and 70 million people within the United States. But if you look at 
even some of the existing platforms, places like Square Cash, Credit Karma, Venmo, Chime, et cetera, right? The collective user bases of those products are already larger than that underbanked population is today. So that begs the question I think that you're asking, which is as you play that story out, right? So as more companies enter this space with the capabilities of serving this underlying demographic and an incentive structure to do that, as more and more consumers start to trust a lot of these solutions, which have trust underwritten inside of the very UI. And as business models become more and more refined to allow folks to offer more targeted products or products with underlying better hooks, I think what you'll start to see is that a large population within that sort of underbanked population will cease to be underbanked, right? If you go back to sort of that initial, you know, who are the underbanked, the folks that aren't served by the banks or that have lost trust over the years, those paradigms are changing, right? The banks are serving them because there's an incentive because the technology itself has changed. And so as we get year by year over this over this upcoming decade, I think what you'll see is a greater and greater adoption within that population of these kinds of products. Now, if you go out and you talk to you know, the consultants in the space, you might get stats like, hey, 10% of users would change their checking account over into a new neobank, right? And people extrapolate from that, that neobanks are doomed or that they won't find a solution for these underbanked folks. And what you tend to find is that sometimes you're not asking the right question, right? Not every person is going to go to a neobank, but every person is going to need some kind of banking services and may end up choosing it from an area that you might not find the most intuitive, right? So take something like Gusto, for example. I might be using Gusto today to go get my paycheck, right? And tomorrow, my tire might pop. And stressed, I might be looking at things like payday lenders and trying to figure out how I'm going to cover that while still putting food on the table for my family. And when I go to check my payroll for Gusto to see, hey, when's that money coming in? I might see a button that says, access your payday early, right? And as I learn more about that and I see, hey, it's free because I've already used Gusto, I can earn more from the underlying account that I create, that might cause me to say, let me give this a shot. Let me see how it works, right? And when I have a good experience, when I'm able to access my money, when I'm able to go and buy that tire and put food on the table, I remember that, right? I remember that feeling. And so while 10% of people might be the ones that are willing to move over to a new neobank, I think what you'll see is folks that are willing to try better targeted and lower cost financial services are a much bigger population than just that 10%. Now, don't get me wrong, right? Some of those folks don't trust financial institutions holistically, and trust doesn't get fixed overnight. The way trust gets fixed is effectively proving that relationship over time, right? The more data points you have that I'm out in your best interest, that I'm being transparent, that I'm communicating with you, the more likely we are to have a trusting relationship. And so I think that you know, over the coming decade, there will still be a segment of folks that don't trust financial institutions and are still looking out for that. Um, but I think the majority of that population over the course of the next 10 years are probably going to migrate out of being the underbanked and become served by one of these flavors of banking solutions across the markets. It's expensive to be poor in America. The poorest people in America pay really high relative fees just to get a bank account. Getting access to cheaper and broader financial services can help the underbanked move up the economic ladder. Yeah, that's that's a big question, right? Uh, and, and I think it's interesting to think about because 
if you think about this population, right, these are typically folks who are in lower income demographics. But the thing about folks in those demographics is they tend to have a much higher velocity of money, right? So if you give $1,000 to someone who is in this demographic versus giving it to someone who is a high net worth individual, the high net worth individual is much more likely to store that money somewhere and hold on to it, which basically has a relatively low velocity, right? So they're not spending it on something. That person's not spending it on something. Whereas if you give those $1,000 to someone in this demographic, that dollar might change hands seven times over the coming year, right? And so that higher velocity of money means more money is getting spent in the economy, means a healthier and faster growing economy, and also means that we're sort of all lifting each other up, right? If you look at where the economy is today, for folks who are underbanked, there's this great book called Nickel and Dimes, right? Which kind of takes you through the decisions that folks in this population have to make, right? So a, a really simple example is something like, you know, if you're a construction worker and you have to buy a pair of boots, rather than buying a nice pair of boots that'll last you a decade because of how much it will take in the short term, you'll buy a pair of boots that is the cheapest one you can find. But the problem is in about half a season, it will go bad and you will need to buy another pair of boots. And you'll have to do that over and over and over again. And it becomes this pseudo tax, right? Where you have to go put a percentage of your income to that, that will then get sort of re-upped and you'll have to do it again in six months. And that keeps you from building wealth, from, from sort of storing wealth for yourself and getting yourself out of this paradigm. And the same thing is true in banking, right? The poorest folks within America are the ones that are being charged $300 plus per year in these kinds of banking fees. And so as you start to get rid of some of those systemic problems, right? You get rid of the $300 in banking fees. You get rid of the 10 to 15% you're paying to payday lenders. You get rid of the amount that you're paying to go pay your bills. And you get rid of the pain that comes from credit cards and extremely high interest. You start to put a lot more money back in the pockets of those individuals, drive the health of the economy, and create an economy that's better for all people. Um, and so I understand that becomes a little bit vague, right? You start to expand those impacts. But the net net of it, right, is by helping these folks, we're helping everyone, right? Because those folks catalyze economic activity, catalyze economic growth. And I think we'll usher in a new era of you know, financial understanding and also financial growth for the average American. We're in the early stages of banking as a service. As the technology matures, it's helping to power new use cases. Q2's banking as a service platform, for example, is being used by payroll companies and personal finance tools to help their customers track and now manage and move their money. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think that's a question that continues to expand, you know, uh, year by year. And it's, it's been really interesting to see that evolution over the last sort of four or five years. I think to answer that question in a, in a material way, meaning what are the solutions that are available that are actually useful? You have to start with what are the problems that most underbanked folks feel today, right? So they have problems around accessing their money, right? Whether it be um, the paychecks that they get or the stimulus checks that are coming in from the government. They have problems when it comes to uh, becoming a part of, you know, the investing ecosystem, et cetera, starting to build their wealth and have their money work for them. They have problems when it comes to, you know, transferring money to each other, uh, to saving for their upcoming goals. And so different fintechs have gone about different of those issues um, with sort of highly targeted solutions. So to name a few, if you look at, uh, 
you know, Square Cash. They solved the problem of transferring money to each other. So now it's easier to split bills. It's easier to even earn rewards on everyday transactions that would normally be reserved only if you have a credit card, right? Or you see, I mentioned earlier on this call, folks like Acorns, right? Who are helping people invest for the first time, even if they don't know too much about picking stocks, but enabling them to plan for their future, save on everyday purchases, and put that towards growing their income, right? Growing their wealth so that they can continue to do more and more in their lives. Or you can look at folks like Credit Karma, who are allowing folks to access their stimulus checks and tax refunds, and direct deposits early, right? Which is a huge thing for most people as something like a tax refund is sometimes the biggest lump sum payment they get all year. And so by providing access to those things early, enabling them to spend them and allowing them to earn instant karma on those everyday transactions, they're creating healthier habits, better transparency, and easier access to cash for individuals, right? The, the last one that I'll mention is, is actually one that I mentioned uh, earlier in this call, um, but I think is fantastic, right? Is Gusto's sort of free cash advance product, right? One of the biggest problems for the underbanked um, is that ability to sort of get an advance on their paycheck. And that's why payday lenders exist. That's why sort of tip as you will lenders exist, right? Because that underlying cash flow problem is still there. But by combining their position as a payroll provider, with their position as a partner to a banking as a service platform, Gusto is able to offer its customers free cash advances on their paychecks, right? And solve a real problem that cannot be easily replicated by its competition or easily replicated by banks because of how it's uniquely using the components of its business to solve a specific customer problem. So the net net, what you're seeing is folks are able to transfer money to each other for free. They're able to access their money through stimulus checks or tax refunds or direct deposits early. They're able to get an advance on their paycheck when they need it and avoid costly payday lenders. And they're able to invest for the first time and start building their wealth. And all of these little things add up, right? Individually, they seem like small items, but when you're saving that 15% of your paycheck for not going to a payday lender, and when you're getting your paycheck early and able to put it towards some of your short-term cash flow needs. And when you're able to take the savings that you've made and grow your wealth with them, you find yourself five, 10 years later with a compounding effect where those savings over the last 10 years, plus the growth of the market that you invested them in, put you in a much better financial position and sort of help you set your financial future. So I still think we're in the early innings, right? I think you'll start to see folks in insurance, folks in telecommunications, folks in marketplaces, et cetera, start asking the same question of how can I reimagine my ecosystem and build something that uniquely solves my customers' problems while driving value for us? And that will create a whole new generation of products that we haven't even seen yet. Um, but even based on what we've seen so far, I think it's, it's reason to be excited. When Q2 began offering banking as a service, people didn't quite understand it. One of the things it does differently than some other options out there is that it's built around Q2's own core banking software, and that opens up opportunities. Now, today, if you sort of fast forward four to five years from when this industry started, there are lots of banking as a service players. But one of the things that can get lost is you know, middleware versus core systems. Unlike others, we don't operate in a middleware structure, so we're not working with one of those legacy cores or encumbered by them. We have our own sort of cloud-based lightweight core, and that does a few things. You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of this call that the two biggest things that have changed with banking as a service are the business model and the capabilities. And at the core of that are platforms like Q2s, right? Whereby 
bringing in a proprietary lightweight cloud-based core, we're able to decrease the cost to service these users dramatically and make it profitable to serve underbanked low balance users. And by taking the functionality of a traditional core and focusing on the white label components and building it in a way that allows for better collaboration between banks and fintechs, we're able to expose that functionality via API in a way that allows these companies to embed them into their existing ecosystems. You know, I mentioned earlier on this call that people don't want another account in a card, right? They want something that's useful, something that actually solves an existing problem. And so by allowing folks to take those modular components and just embed them inside their existing ecosystems and combine the synergies, like we were talking about with the you know, payroll powered free cash advance, that enables these companies to differentiate, that enables them to serve this population at a lower cost. And, and this is a, I would say, relatively understated component, if they should decide that down the line, they want to become the bank, right? And start serving these users even more through a sort of litany of financial products, Core Pro can, our core, can become the core at the center of their offering, right? And they're able to sort of migrate from, you know, partnering with a bank to becoming the bank without disrupting their services, without changing their business model and allowing them to continue growing, continue growing rapidly and, and actually scale. So, you know, it, it, it's been an interesting last five years. We've focused primarily on that thesis of how do we drive differentiation across verticals. And so we've gone from payments to savings, to lending, to PFM, to payroll. And we're kind of just going market by market and working with our partners to build a, a new financial ecosystem. That was Q2's Ahan Sakar on how banking as a service is helping to open up financial services to millions of new people. It's part of a four-part series Tearsheet Studios is running with Q2. Go to the Tearsheet website to listen and read the other parts of the series.